the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour uh, this week of Thanksgiving. It is uh, great to be thankful, as uh, Larry was saying in the previous hour. And uh, one of the things uh, we are all thankful for are our good friends and dear friendships that are so important. Um, We all get by with a little help from our friends. friend I made this year, uh, earlier in the year, um, and uh, have uh, gotten to know better over uh, the course of the year, is the entrepreneur and businessman and author, best-selling author, hugely best-selling author, Mr. Robert Kiyosaki, who is here in studio, I think, for your fourth time this year, if I'm not mistaken, Robert. It's good to have you here. Many of you know him from his um, best-selling book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Uh, and he just returned from Europe where he was teaching some students. That's what I love about you. You're a consummate educator, Robert. Thank you for being here. I teach because I hated school. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And and I wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad 25 years ago. It's still number one. Yeah, yeah. After 25 years. Yeah. And I wrote it for this time because I could see this time coming. Yeah. And we're in a mess financially. And as you know, our schools teach us nothing about money. Right. And you and I met because of those 39 woke professors at Arizona State. That's right. Came after us. That's right to shut us down because I, I was teaching capitalism. Yep. And they don't like that. Nope. So anyway, I'm, I'm a hardcore educator, but I'm a rich educator. <laughs> you did well. Uh, you did very well. You know, I knew that that program at ASU, that the, we had uh, Mr. Lewis in last week. He was here last week talking. Um, and um, I knew that program was going to, that night was going to be a problem. Health, wealth, and happiness. People said, well, why, how could you be against health, wealth, and happiness? What's to argue about here? Well, they didn't know the progressive left. They have a very distorted view of what public health is. To them, you know, public health means shutting down schools and telling people what they can and cannot do over a virus that uh, is not significantly going to affect them if they take care of themselves and do the smart and right things. Um, it doesn't mean shutting down the entire economy, right? Get vaccinated, wear masks. Wear masks, pit family member against family member. Wealth, they hate wealth because they're Marxists. Right. And happiness, most of them are unhappy. They don't like happiness. They don't want us. So yeah. I knew it was going to be a problem. <laughs> you can't do it. You just can't do health, wealth, and happiness on our colleges anymore. You know, and Dennis uh, Prager talked about happiness. Yeah. I learned a lot. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on stage with the guy. Yeah. And these college professors are protesting away. And Dennis Prager is talking about happiness. Yeah. I learned a lot that night. Yeah. I, I, right? They, there is an investment <clears throat> in people being cynical and unhappy. They have an investment in that. I suppose that, Robert, is why they believe um, that they can carry the tide of transforming or revolutionizing what we have. If you're happy, if you're content, there's no point for a revolution. There's no point for fundamentally transforming the nation if people are content and happy, right? So they're invested in making us unhappy, thus giving them the cause for their 
for their progressivism, I think. Well, look at what we're talking about just now. Yeah. <clears throat> In health, yeah. they had that COVID. Mm-hmm. I know COVID was real because I had it. Yeah. But the vaccine, the mask, and all that to shut down the economy, it was right up their alley. Yeah. They wanted to control our lives. That's right. And I had so many fights with friends because yeah. I didn't want the vaccine. Right. I refused to. Yeah. I didn't get vaccinated. Yeah. I had COVID, but yeah. I refused. It wasn't that bad. So that was health. And then wealth. I talked about capitalism, yeah. which upsets them all. Yeah. And then Dennis Prager on happiness. Yeah. You know, and the tip that Dennis Prager says, happiness begins with gratitude. Yes. Yes. I went, wow. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. So one every time I feel unhappy, I go, well, why am I grateful for this or grateful for that? And it changes everything. What do I have to be thankful for is yeah. a great question because yeah. we all have something. And it can always be worse. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. It can always be worse. Just talk to someone who's, you know, there's a there's a state legislator, you and I know, Representative uh, Quan Nguyen. And um, I was asking, he's from Vietnam. Right. And I asked him about a legislative fight he was in once where a, he was a, another legislator, I think possibly it was a Democrat, was criticizing him quite quite strongly. And I said, that's pretty bitter stuff. Does that get to you? You know what he said to me? He said, I saw young children thrown off helicopters. Those words don't get to me. You know? Perspective. It can always be worse, right? Mm-hmm. It can always be worse. So you were in Europe teaching. What were you teaching about? Capitalism. I have a feeling. Capitalism. Capitalism. Yeah. It's how the rich make millions and pay no taxes yeah. using debt. Yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, that's like my friend Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Another radio guy. Yeah. <clears throat> he says live debt free. Yeah. I'm a billion two in debt. Yeah. And the difference is just a little historic you know, yeah. nature. Is Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard in 71, and the dollar became debt. And the reason we have a banking crisis right now is because the treasuries, U.S. US treasuries, bonds, and all that are collapsing. Mm -hmm. So every time this guy Powell raises interest rates, the banks collapse. And we have a major banking crisis on our hands, and these guys are attacking me at Arizona State, these woke Marxist commie pinko professors that should be teaching capitalism. Yeah. But we're, we're in serious trouble financially. Talk a little more about that. Talk about some of the things that the concern The national you. debt cannot be paid back. Yeah. We're, we're now at the point, you know, the went over the, the debt-to-GDP ratio is now 140 almost. Yeah. That means every tax dollar we collect cannot pay off the debt. And how long are people going to keep buying those stupid treasury bonds? Now, I, I get into fights with financial planners, and everybody's got their own shtick. I don't touch bonds and the reason is is because that's what's collapsing the economy. The bond market is a lot bigger than the stock market. They should teach people that. So right now, the bond market is collapsing because they're trying to raise the interest rates. The banks go bust. And that's why we're in serious trouble. And then on top of that, you have a commercial real estate crisis because of, the, because of COVID, people stopped going back to office buildings. And I remember as a young investor, I really wanted to own an office building. Yeah. Thank God I never bought one, you know. <laughs> Thank God I stayed, I stayed with single-family apartment houses. And uh, so I didn't go into – they say that now the equivalent of 26 Empire State Buildings empty in New York City. In New York City alone. And that means all the REITs, R-E-I-T's, these financial planners have been pushing, are defective now. 
So we have a major crisis for my generation, a boomer generation, is because they're not going to be able to retire because the stock market is crashing, Mm -hmm. because the bond market is crashing. Why don't they tell people that? Robert, I think that one of the problems is, and I see this in my field of political science or political philosophy, as much as you probably see it in finance and entrepreneurship and economics, is that we have a cohort, a cadre of professors roughly my age. They don't know it. One of the reasons they can't teach it is they don't know it. They They weren't taught it themselves. I was one of the lucky ones because I was raised with an older generation of teachers. You were one of the lucky ones because you had good teachers. You, you, you kind of model yourself, in fact, don't you? Well, you correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems to me you model yourself a little bit after someone I never knew but I read. But you knew, and that was Buckminster Fuller. He never stopped teaching, right? Never, ever stopped teaching. Into what? How old did he live? He lived to be, did he, he make 86. it? To, yeah, he was pushing, knocking on 90. He was still teaching, wasn't I, he? I studied with him in um, 71, 72, and 73 for the summers. Yeah. And every time I studied with that guy, you know, John Denver called him the grandfather of the future. Uh-huh. He was a futurist. Yep. So for three summers, he taught me how to see the future. Mm-hmm. And that's why I could see this crisis coming. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Grunch of Giants, was pub was published posthumously. And if you read that book, you could see this crisis today. The crisis is in our money, money system. And we're being lied to by our leaders. Is there... A way out beyond, I mean, it it always seemed to me the traditional understanding I had of it, because I grew up under the tutelage of uh, Jack Kemp, mm. who believed in the gold standard. <laughs> uh, his answer was that we could theoretically grow our way out of the economy if you, in, if you reduced enough the marginal tax rate, fixed us back on a gold standard, that we could, and I'm worried that I don't know if we can grow our way out at this point. I just don't know. But it would take radical reform to do so. Can I take a commercial break and maybe we talk a little bit about growth when we come right back? I also would like it if you wouldn't mind. You've probably done this a thousand million times. Talk a little bit about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, too, for the young – for the younger in our audience who who may not have had the benefit of knowing about this landmark publication of yours. Robert Kiyosaki and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to have in studio Robert Kiyosaki. Um, Many of you know him from his writings. Many of you know him from uh, other television uh, appearances, his podcasts, of course, and from this show and uh, his uh, several books, most prominently Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which we'll get to in a moment, Robert, if I can ask you to revisit some, some of it. But first, I was asking about our economic condition. I had the romantic view that with the right set of radical reform, we could grow our way out of, this, of, the, of, of our budget deficits and our debt and our financial crisis. I'm sometimes a little bit concerned that it may be too late, though. Is there a way to grow our way out, or would it be such a need for fundamental and radical reform that we could— Well, let me ask could, you this. If you owned a house yeah. and it was worth $50,000 and you're making $50,000 a year— yeah. But your debt was six million. Yeah, yeah. Can you grow your way out? No, no, no. But basically, that's what the debt to GDP of one thirty-five means. Uh, we're 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 married. We're managed 
by a bunch of cartoon characters. I mean, this guy Powell, he's an attorney. He's a really rich man, so he's out of touch with the working class. And this guy, Janet Yellen, she looks like one of the monsters. You know, <laughs> and this guy, Biden, oh, my God. Oh, my God. His first act, his first act as president was to cut the Keystone XL pipeline. I'm an oil man because I went to school. To, I'm a, I sell for standard oil. I'm an oil guy. I own oil wells. And when Trump was president, oil was selling for $35 a barrel. The first day Biden came on, his first act was to cut the Keystone Pipeline, and oil went from 35 to $130 a barrel, which I knew exactly what he was doing. He is going to crush the middle class, and the, the poor already screwed, but he was now crushing the middle class intentionally. That's because I think Obama worked for Soros, and Soros hates this country. And there is this fundamental fascination with appeasing the green movement which Amen. is right which is a socialist movement in the first Amen. place born from europe and it's divorced from any economic reality whatsoever it's going to make everyone it's going to make everything more expensive and make everyone starve we're becoming marxist yeah well you well, know we're becoming a communist country. Uh, I, 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 it's a takeover from the inside. I have been saying that for all the concerns we have about the Communist Party of China or the government of China and its various attempts to infiltrate here, the bigger problem is our importation of their ideas willingly. We're willingly importing their ideas here. And I think that's just as bad an indictment on us as it is on them. Well, he did that a long time ago. You know, Marx wrote his book in 1848, The Communist Manifesto. And in that book, I, had, was requ- I went to military school. Yeah. It was required reading for economics. Every teacher should read Marx's Communist Manifesto and find out they're communists. Yeah. Every school teacher is a communist. They're good people, but they don't know they have communist values. So in 1848, Marx says communism would take over America in two stages. Stage one was 1930, when Columbia University, their teachers' college, imported Marxist teachers from Germany to start teaching teachers. That was 1930. That was step one. Step two was when President Trump lost the election to the ballot box. And that's what, that's what what's his name, uh, Stalin says, it's not who votes that counts, it's who counts yeah. the votes. Yeah. America is finished, I hate to say that, yeah. from the inside. Yeah. And because our schools don't require teachers to read Marx's Communist Manifesto, written in 1848. It's only about 50 pages. Yeah, you can read it easily. Yeah. But that our teachers are Marxists. They go, they go to education schools to get graduate degrees Correct. in education. And when you read about what they're taught, it's, oh, a, it's, a, it's a fundamental transformation, including, I mean, not just on the economics, certainly on economic issues to the degree they even educate on economics, but on this whole gender nonsense. I mean, this is, it's, 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 it's fundamentalist Marxism in thinking you can overcome nature. I'm glad you're still teaching it. You, you still teach the Communist Manifesto, don't you, when you go and lecture? When I go and I talk about the—you see, what, what Stalin says, you know, like, it's not who votes that yeah, counts, yeah. it's who counts, counts the, the votes. votes yeah. But also Marx says a progressive income tax is, is essential for the spread of communism. Right. 
So after cutting the Keystone XL pipeline, what did Biden do next? He hired 87,000 new IRS agents. My God, that man, he, he, he operates in plain daylight and nobody says anything. Then he cuts down the border wall. Fentanyl pours across the borders. We have huge immigration crime problems and all this. Why don't, how can people vote for him? Watch what, watch what he's doing, not what, he can't say anything. But the school I went to was octa non verba, deeds not words. Watch what he's doing. He is a heart. He is sabotaging this country. You know, one of the things, Robert, one of the things that is uh, so so unnerving, so unsettling about all of this is the way they go about it. So you ask somewhat rhetorically, but somewhat seriously, you ask, how can people vote for this? How can people support this? And they do that through another Stalinist stage, if you will, I think, just my own theory. You know, the moment Donald Trump was elected in 2016, before he was even inaugurated, he was labeled and libeled as a fascist. He was labeled and libeled as a Nazi and an anti-Saint. He was labeled and libeled with the worst words one could find from world history. And we went through four years of his presidency where half the country, I think, at least the Democratic Party, kept reinforcing that message in an endless loop. Fascist, racist, bigot, Nazi. They they changed the thinking and they communicated this message so that people wouldn't look at the deeds of the Trump administration, which by any standard was a successful presidency, even against all that pressure. They, that's how they had to do it. They had to convert the mind. It was almost a brainwashing of the American public, almost. And that's how you and I got to meet at Arizona State. Yeah, yeah. Those they did, yeah that's right. They did the same to you. You were yeah. a white nationalist purveyor of hate, and right? You was really funny, this Black Lives Matter. Yeah. I think it's really funny. Why, I've, I've never... I've experienced, I'm Japanese, yeah. so I experienced prejudice. You sure. Know? And we uh, we did bomb Pearl, Pearl Harbor, which pissed off a lot. Well, you people. didn't. <laughs> you were an American. And, uh, and, our, <laughs> and our family got locked up in internment camps and all that stuff. But we didn't come out bitter. Yeah. You know, the Japanese came out of the internment camps. I had seven uncles fight in World War II, five in Europe, two in Asia against the Japanese. Let, let, let's talk about just that part of discrimination in America when we come back, because everyone's talking about discrimination. And I think our family's experiences are kind of interesting, both yours and mine, yours from the Asian background, mine from Jewish background. Let's talk a little bit about that on the other side of the break. Would that be okay? I would love to do that. All right, good. Robert Kiyosaki and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Mr. Robert Kiyosaki is my in-studio guest. Delighted to have him. Many of you know him uh, as a, a businessman and an author, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, his podcasts, his television appearances, his lectures, uh, his appearances here. And we were just talking before the break about discrimination in America. And um, it's interesting. You and I have never really opened up on this issue, Robert. Um, you grew up in uh, Hawaii as a Japanese-American, and I grew up in a Jewish family. My grandfather moved here from Europe and fought for this country in World War I, 
and my daddy fought in World War II. He was in the Pacific Theater. Um, and the military, we have great things to say about the military, and it was a great place to integrate. But there, you know, there's always going to be bigots in society, and you know, it's not always easy. You grew up an Asian American, and and it's an odd thing for all that happened to Asian Americans in this country throughout World War II and what happened to Jews in Europe throughout World War II, you don't hear the grievances from Asian Americans today or from Jews today except when it's happening in real time as we're seeing it now in our college campuses and so forth. What is it about Asians and Jews that got over these grievances and resentments that others have not? What is it? Well, I was going to ask you that question. Yeah. I mean, how can they hate Jews so much? I, I mean, I, that's my question. Yeah, well. I'm going, what, the, <laughs> what the hell have you ever done to me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, my, my family yeah. that got interned, yeah. they, 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 had, they were farmers yeah. in, the, in the Inland Valley of California. Yeah. They got locked up. Everything was taken, yeah. stolen. Uh, Awful. 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 But my family then just volunteered to go fight. Yeah. It's like I said, five uncles fight in Europe. Yeah. Two fight against the Japanese in Japan. Yeah. And one got captured, was a POW, tortured by the Japanese. And uh, But we came back ready to defend our country more. So when I see people attacking Jews, like, you know— I, why? Do you think there's a resentment? Because I see it against – you say it against Jews. I'm seeing it against Asians as well. When I lived in Los Angeles, for example, I lived in L.A., outside of L.A. for a little while in the uh, early 90s. Yeah, early 90s. And there were some riots after the Rodney King thing. Right, right. And they deliberately targeted – they deliberately targeted Asian stores. Correct. I saw it. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a resentment. There's just a some kind of – odd resentment against some portions of success, people that work hard and prove that you can succeed and it runs against the leftist progressive Marxist narrative. Maybe that's Israel's problem too in a way, you know, in the midst of basically 20 failed nations, you have this success story. And I wonder if there's a resentment over that in the same way there's a resentment against Asian Americans and Jewish Americans. I wonder. I wonder, too. But I had a, a couple of Muslim friends. Mm-hmm. I've never met people that hated so much. Really? Saleh Malahi. When he, when he spoke about Jews, he yeah. spit. Yeah. And I, and I later found out, he, I did my best to be friends with yeah. him. But it's passed down through the family. Mm. You know, they, 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 they teach their kids to hate Jews. And I don't think my family didn't teach us to hate anybody. Yeah, mine neither. Mine neither. I think, I think the key to the thing is what are, what are the families teaching yeah. their kids? Yeah. Because the, th- the prejudice against Jews is centuries. I learned early, my parents were, I suppose, you would call them old-fashioned liberals. Uh, they'd probably still vote for Democrats, but maybe they wouldn't be happy about it. But I remember them teaching me at an early age. They were very big in the civil rights movement of the yeah. 60s. And they, they taught me at an early age. I said, uh, 
why, why? I mean, you know, why? And they said, well, one, because it's our country and we treat everyone equal here. But two, they said, if someone doesn't like blacks, they're not going to like Jews or Asians either. If someone's a bigot, they're going to be a bigot. And um, that stuck with me Mm. from a very young age. But that's a great story. And then, of course, you put on the uniform of the United States, of course, as well, and fought in Vietnam. This was a short segment. Uh, We have a commercial break. We'll have a longer one next. I do want to talk a little bit about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. thank you. Because uh, actually, you know, it talks about your parents, too. That's that's a book about about your parents. Robert Kiyosaki. What are we teaching our kids, you know? Yeah, what we're teaching and what he learned and didn't learn. He and I will be right back. That's a Hawaiian theme song for you. My favorite show, Magnum P.I. Robert Kiyosaki is my guest in studio guest. One more thing on discrimination before we talk a little bit about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, if I can, Robert. We were talking off air during the commercial break. One of the most damaging things we can do, probably socially and culturally, and indeed in some cases economically, is this move for reparations that is grasping so much of the conversation, particularly in California. It's amen, a bad thing. Amen. Amen. It's a bad On to military school, U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, Kings Point, New York. We had to read the Cap- Communist Manifesto, but we also had to study the rise of Adolf Hitler. Oh. And Adolf Hitler came to power after the Treaty of Versailles. Right. And they forced Germany to pay reparations. The word has a rhyme to it. And so the paying of reparations bankrupted Germany after World War I. And that's what brought Hitler to power. So now we're asking that we people who are never slave owners pay blacks who are never slaves reparations. That is the worst thing we can possibly do. I mean, what about the American Indians? What about the Japanese? What about the people here? Why are we paying blacks reparations? Why are we doing that? We're we're bankrupting this country. Why are we treating them that way? I'd be embarrassed if I was black. It's it's, It's part of this narrative we were speaking about, I think, a little bit in the first segment of the effort to run this country down, to make this yes. country seem like it's responsible for all the evils in the world. You know, that's the distortion of American history. We had slavery, and it was obviously awful. We went to war to end slavery. But you know what? The way we talk about it now, the way we teach it, is as if this whole country was a slave-owning nation. It wasn't. It was the minority part of this country. It lost the war. The majority of the country was in the Union that fought the minority of the country that was the South. The majority won. Soldiers went to war singing the battle hymn of the Republic as he died to make men holy. We shall die to make men free. And it's as if the Civil War was won by the South. It was not. The the slaveholding part of this country, which was the smaller part of this country in population and in size, lost. And the way the history is taught today, it's as if it was the majority or the larger part of this country that was slave-owning and won. Again, it's about distorting the history to achieve an ideological objective, right? If we pass reparations... It'll instantiate that. I'm, yeah. I'm out of this country. I understand. I, understand. I mean, this it is... The, why do we treat blacks as incompetent second citizens or victims and all that stuff? I, if I was a black, and, bes- and besides, only people that ever call me... A, People who call me a white supremacist and a racist are black guys. Is that right? I cannot believe it. I've been discriminated right? against by blacks more than any other right? other race. To my face. Is that right? 
Yeah, and I'm going, what do you call it? I, I, we've, we, the downfall of this country will be the racialization of it. It is. It, it's a toxic thing. And whether it's anti-black or anti-Asian or anti-Jew, it's that kind of thinking that is just simply toxic. It's toxic. It yes. ruins every society. Yes. We're all Americans. That's like I said, my, my great uncle was captured the yeah. first day of World War II. Yeah. He was in the Bataan Death March. Oh he went to prison or war camp. As a prisoner of war, he was castrated because he was Japanese. There's this one Japanese guy makes all these white guys in a concentration camp yeah. in the Philippines. They went after him harshest. And, they, they, and, the, yeah. and his, the, the camp commander came after him, and he escaped, and he spent the rest of his life tracking down that commander. I can only imagine. He spent until he caught him. I can only imagine. So it's a private war in yeah. that one. Yeah. But why are we being asked to pay reparations? None of us own slaves. And the blacks here were never slaves. This is ridiculous. Robert, short time we have left. Your book is so important, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's attested to by the currency of it and how it's still number one and how it has sold God knows how many millions, well over 50 million, translated into God knows how many languages. For the younger audience that may be a little bit unfamiliar with it, just a little bit, Tell them the thesis of it. What is the thesis of Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Let's get a new generation interested in it. Well, I was, you know, I was born in Hawaii, fourth-generation Japanese-American. And my poor dad was the head of education for the state of Hawaii. He also ran for lieutenant governor's Republican in Hawaii, which proved he wasn't so smart. My poor dad was also, also attended Stanford, University of Chicago Northwestern. But he had no money. He was broke. And every time he told me, I said, Dad, what's the secret to success? He says, go to school and get your master's, get your Ph.D. And I said, Dad, you're broke. <laughs> Ph.D. stands for poor, helpless, and desperate. Yeah. So when I was 10 years old, I went in search of a new teacher. Uh-huh. That's all I did. And he was my best friend's father, a man without any, financial, any education at all because his father died when he was 13, and he took over the family business. So Rich Dad was a small business guy. He owned gas stations. He owned convenience stores hotels and restaurants. And he had us, He had his son and me, my classmate, work for him for free, and he would teach us. And my father, poor dad, went next. He says, how come are you working for free? Because my rich dad said to me, he, he says, if I pay you, you think like an employee. Mm-hmm. I'm training you to think like an entrepreneur. Mm. And that whole thing is what we're programming our kids to be is to be employees, go to school, get a job, work hard, pay your taxes, stay out of debt, and invest for the long term in the stock market. That financial advice is killing us today. It's obsolete. And that's why I wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it's how many languages? God knows. Can you even count? 50-plus languages. And um, And it was turned down by every publisher. I was going to ask you that. You know, I've seen that happen so many times. J.K. Rowling had that problem. My old boss, Bill Bennett, had that problem, you know. And then you get one courageous publisher. Sometimes you have to self-publish. What what happened was uh, Amway found the book. Is that right? Yeah. And I I love Amway now, you know. Yeah. And they took me worldwide. Yeah. And, you know, I'm— I'm looking at starting my own network marketing company just oh, are because you? you asked the question, what sure. can a person do? Yeah. When this economy goes down, which I think it's crashing severely because of the debt load, period, become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Start your own small business. Survive. You know, I mean, that's how we survive. So I started off really small, and I kept growing the business. 
but that's entrepreneurship. You have some failures along the way. Oh, Failure's God. a great teacher, right? It's oh, important God. to embrace it. I mean, oh. you don't strive for it, but it's important to embrace it. My first business, you know, this, my CFO asked me, he said, I need $100,000. I said, will this save the company? He says, yes, it'll save the company. So I, I mortgaged my father's house, yeah. poor dad's house. Yeah. I gave him $100,000. He ran off with it. Yeah. That was my first lesson. I went, uh, holy moly. Yeah. People are not honest in the yeah. real world. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with um, Tom Lewis last week. Oh, he was a great guy. Yeah. He was an entrepreneur. Yeah. Entrepreneur. Also didn't have a role model for a dad. And uh, we were just talking about the importance of failure. It's important to accept it. You're not going to be a success in a day. That's probably one of the things our youngest generation right now, our, 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 our Generation Z, doesn't understand. You don't start off on third base. No. No. And it takes a lot of hard work. Right. Well, it's wonderful having you and seeing you here, Thank Robert. Thank you again. Thanks if for I the time. I yeah, enjoy it. I enjoy it, too. Happy Thanksgiving Thank if you, I don't you. see you before then. I've been in Phoenix 25 years. I love this place. It's a great place. Great, great, great Another place reason to, to be thankful. God bless you. Thank you, Robert. I'll be back with a closing. Portions of the show brought to you by our friends at Y-Refi. They're based here and headquartered here locally. They're great corporate citizens in our community, as well as offering up a great investment, a secure investment that actually helps people. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return with Y-Refi, and the investment's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. You're in control. You can turn your money, your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. There are no fees there is no attack on principle. If you ever need your money back, you get a monthly statement with no surprises. It's a secure and collateralized portfolio that may be a better option for you than where you have your money now. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. Folks all over the country are earning a high fixed rate of return with Y-Refi, and they don't care about what happens with the stock market because it's not tied to it. With Y-Refi, you can do well by doing good. Investyrefi.com. Tell them Seth sent you. I had a piece published in Newsweek today, Newsweek Online. You can go to newsweek.com, go to their opinion section. It's on our drug uh, poisoning crisis, uh, or you can see I linked to it on Twitter or X or what we call Twix. You can uh, get it that way, at Seth Liebson, L-E-I-B-S-O-H-N. Grateful to uh, Newsweek for publishing it. It's uh, titled, The U.S. Worked Tirelessly to Fight AIDS and COVID. Why not fentanyl? Think about the enormity of our drug crisis. <coughs> for those of you over a certain age, you remember how big a deal we made out of, uh, rightfully so, how big a deal we made out of the AIDS crisis. You know, David, um, the worst year for AIDS deaths was 1995 in America, and we lost 50,000 Americans to AIDS that year, 50,000. Um, we are losing far more with the drug poisoning crisis, far more. Um, think about it this way. Uh, we are losing about 110,000 Americans a year. That's more than double what we lost in the worst year of AIDS. The population increased 25% since 1995, but we're more than doubling our deaths. To lose the number of people we now lose to drug deaths 
1995, as we did with AIDS, given the population change, you would have had to have lost 35,000 more people in 1995, which is more than the size of most major American universities. Where's the attention? Where's the prevention work? That's the gist of my opinion piece in Newsweek. Newsweek.com. Check it out. All right. I am Seth, and you are David, and you and I are going to have some (laughs) serious conversation when we come back. Yes. A lot of history. A lot of history. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 